Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily, and Victoria is here as well. And for this topic, we really kind of wanted to dive into social media's role in the recent elections and issues surrounding censorship and, you know, where we can go from here with social media. What's the role that social media is going to play in the future? So we're going to go ahead and let Victoria introduce our special guest for this this um, segment. So, Victoria? Yes, our guest today is Dr. Daniel Kreese from the Hussman School um, from UNC. And Dr. Kreese, can you go ahead and tell our guests what you do? I'm the Cato Associate Professor in the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, as well as a principal researcher of the UNC Center for Information Technology and Public Life. So to start off our podcast topic, let's talk about the role social media has had in the recent elections. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what you see is every election cycle, really since 2000, we've seen the growing importance of digital and then social media as being a central way that campaigns communicate with with voters. Um, It's also a central way they raise money. It's a central way they engage volunteers. It's a central way they register people to vote and, you know, make their last minute uh, campaign appeals and and urge people to actually turn out to vote. Um, All of this reflects much more broadly the fact that citizens um, of, of every age, of every race, of uh, you know, rural and, and urban, um, pretty much live much more of their lives um, through social media. Um, and, you know, this reflects both the fact that, um, you know, everyone is on Facebook, uh, whether it's, um, you know, grandparents looking at pictures of their grandkids or, um, you know, students using Facebook to complete um, college assignments, uh, you know, at the same time as, um, you know, Instagram, YouTube is now a dominant platform for streaming video that sits alongside, uh, you know, cable television uh, in many households. Um, Twitter has become a very key way that journalists and uh, political operatives apply their trade. Um, So, I mean, I think broadly campaigners have followed these much larger social shifts um, that really reveal the degree to which people now live their social and professional lives uh, online in ways that simply they did not 30, 40 years ago. I think if you look at, you know, if if you look at the fact that in the 1960s, a campaign could basically buy advertising time on any of the big three networks during prime time and reach upwards of 90% of the American public. Um, To do that today um, is impossible. Um, Campaigns would have to buy advertising across hundreds of different platforms 
um, you know, from from cable television to YouTube TV to Facebook to Twitter. So I think one thing that you see is just the fact that campaigns have really struggled to gain the attention of voters, to break through the many different entertainment options that people have. Um, and therefore, they need to go to where the voters are. Um, and a big a big part of that is through social media. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to c- campaigns in the recent election and with the emergence of social media, with all these different online platforms, let's talk about monitoring these campaigns. Because there are um, certain instances where offline there are checks and balances to moderate how campaigners are um, going about the elections. But online, it's it's a little bit more difficult to monitor what is a campaign, who is a fan, um, and how exactly information is being spread about a certain candidate. Can you talk more about um, some of the things that you've seen within the recent election that might raise eyebrows with the way that things are being conducted? Sure. So, so this is a big story of regulatory failure in the United States. Um, the reality is that the Federal Election Commission has not kept pace with the rapid technological and media changes that now shape the way that campaigns do what it is that they do. So, um, so for instance, here, I'll illustrate that in a few different ways. Since 2016, we had um, various foreign actors, including the Russian government, but also domestic actors, uh, compromise the security of the election um, through things like, you know, fake Facebook accounts and coordinated disinformation campaigns. Um, given that we uh, face such a threat to, to free and fair elections in 2016, you would have expected um, that the federal government, through the Federal Election Commission, which is the primary agency tasked with securing uh, elections, would have set a clear set of rules around things like disclosure, around things like uh, transparency uh, into campaigning, whether that's paid ads or um, you know, uh, requiring the, the security of, of platforms like Facebook and Google and the like. The reality is none of that happened. So what you saw since 2016 is that all the major platforms, this is you know, Facebook and, and uh, their own property, Instagram, Google, and their own property, YouTube, um, Twitter, uh, Snapchat, uh, and the like, all took steps voluntaristically to create their own regulatory structures um, within their platform. So this is where they've done things like create political ad transparency databases. Um, they created disclosure rules. They um, provided some insight into the way that campaign ads were, were being targeted to certain members of the electorate. They all set policies that ban things like what they call coordinated inauthentic uh, activity, meaning these are the strategic disinformation campaigns that are cloaked from public uh, from the public's view, so people don't know um, who's actually behind them. You also saw just very unprecedented in the 2020 election um, that all the major platforms set very clear rules around things like electoral disinformation. Uh, that was disinformation designed to confuse people about the processes or procedures of voting. Um, they set limits on political advertising. T- uh, Twitter banned it entirely. Um, Facebook set limits on uh, being able to run ads in the week before and after the election to prevent uh, false claims of victory. 
Um, all of which platforms have done completely uh, independently and completely voluntaristically um, from any public agency sort of setting these these broad guidelines around um, the, the role that platform should play in the election. So I think to, to your to your question, that sort of sets the, the broad backdrop. Um, what have we seen this cycle? I mean, I, I think, um, first of all, platforms performed much better than I expected. Um, so we certainly did see attempts uh, around things like strategic disinformation campaigns on major platforms. Um, generally, they had very strong and robust electoral security teams that were set up uh, in place to try to take them down. And in fact, they did. Um, we saw, in general, a pretty robust uh, response to things like election disinformation coming from especially political uh, elite actors. Um, like the president, where you saw, you know, Facebook labeling um, uh, various of the president's posts. You saw Twitter take uh, take more aggressive action to put some of the president's false claims behind disclaimers to limit its reach, to limit its spread. Um, these are all sort of robust actions that have taken shape in order to check against disinformation. Um, however, you know, there are a lot of other things that we saw that I think most people would point to as being undemocratic. Um, so, you know, in some of the Stop the Steal groups uh, on, on Facebook, you, um, you saw coordinated disinformation campaigns that were allowed to stand. You saw um, calls for political violence that were allowed to stay up on Facebook or Facebook hadn't, uh, hadn't caught before it spread uh, widely. Um, you know, and, you know, this remains sort of a troubling pattern uh, is the ways in which platforms, just by virtue of their scale, can be gained by malicious political actors who are looking to undermine um, democratic processes, democratic governance. Mm -hmm. And so going forward, um, because these social media platforms are really the ones to take on that role of trying to stop the disinformation campaigns that were coming from foreign actors, are there concerns about censorship and the power that these platforms ultimately have? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think the so the challenge, I think the challenges are are numerous here. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, we don't really have a good regulatory framework that governs, um, you know, platforms and and political speech. Um, there are much much more robust systems in other countries, such as the year, such as uh, Germany, and um, you know, lots more active discussion within the European Union to sort of set frameworks um, around what you know what should be permissible speech. Of course, in the U.S., we have a very strong tradition of the First Amendment, but the First Amendment is not absolute, um, you know, and certainly in this case, the First Amendment uh, does not extend to the decisions that private companies like Facebook and Google um, make uh, within their platforms. Uh, they are private businesses and they have every right to govern their platforms in a way that's gonna uh, have returns to shareholders. Um, and you know that's gonna create the user communities that ultimately is gonna result um, in people who are using these services and who are happy about those services and who are you know, generating revenue for Facebook. Um, and its shareholders. So I think in the U.S. we haven't quite figured out this balance uh, as of yet, which is to say, like, you know, what should Facebook be allowed to do in terms of, you know, setting uh, a regulatory framework for its own uh, for its own platform in accord with its own business needs and and um, you know with with its user base versus the 
expectation that many people have that Facebook should be a platform for political speech. And I think this is where a lot of the conflicts over things like censorship lie, um, is that, you know, uh, people see Facebook as wielding uh, too much power. Um, I think the, the problem is a little bit more subtle and a little bit more difficult than that. I, I think a lot of the challenge has been not in the fact that Facebook is censoring speech. Um, I think it's often doing so um, uh, in a way that accords with longstanding policies that frankly are in Facebook's interest uh, as a business. However, they've done so in a very ham-handed way. Um, that they, they often enforce their policies very unevenly. Um, they don't always provide justifications, public justifications for the actions that they do take. Um, and there's often no appeals process. So, you know, it becomes very confusing. It's very opaque uh, to users. I think that's created a lot of space, particularly on the political right, to, to charge, you know, make allegations of bias. Um, when in reality, Facebook has a very, uh, a pretty clear set of policies on the books and has had that for a long time. And again, this stems from their, their interest as a business. Um, but, you know, given the fact that they haven't always applied those policies evenly or fairly, uh, and that they've often done so with very little transparency into the sorts of actions that they do take, um, that has sort of opened the door to, to perceptions of bias. Uh, and claims of bias, and that's proven, you know, deeply problematic to platforms like Facebook. Sure. And so, you know, platforms like this, like these social media platforms, do any of them have agendas? You know, does Twitter, does Facebook have a political agenda that, that you know, political scientists or, or other people are seeing them push or kind of put out there? Or... You know, are these platforms, can people trust that these platforms are truly unbiased and they're just platforms for us to use? Yeah, I mean, I think all the evidence says that Facebook's agenda is what's best for Facebook's business and Facebook's revenue. Mm -hmm. um, Facebook doesn't have any grand agenda beyond what's best for Facebook from a business perspective, a commercial perspective, and a regulatory perspective. Sure. Um, I think that has been abundantly clear um, for Facebook, for Twitter, for Google, for YouTube, mm -hmm. is that these companies are, are acting the way that we would expect companies uh, to act, which is to say they want to maximize their, their profits. Um, they want to return values to their shareholders. So, you know, I think the basic logic is, is this, right? Um, think about all the people who are on Facebook and the very small minority of people who are on Facebook for, for political reasons, right? One of the things that we do know is that most Americans don't spend a lot of time thinking about politics. Um, you know, you're, you're hyper aware user who um, is following every political candidate and every political cause. These are these are in the in the very small minority of Facebook's users. They're often very vocal, but most people are using Facebook to catch up with their friends and family, to look at you know photos of their of their grandchildren, um, to share funny memes and and humorous content, um, to read about sports. Right. Um, so it, so Facebook is primarily designed in mind not for politics, but to make that user community, the vast majority of its users, um, coming back for more um, and engaging with that sort of content that they that they want to see and that they enjoy. 
I think Facebook, you know, YouTube, Twitter, all these platforms have concluded um, that, you know, their services being used by political extremists, being used by people who call for violence or who engage in hate speech or who circulate disinformation about things like vaccines or, or COVID, um, that, that's not in any of these platforms' long-term business interests. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go to a platform like Instagram to see your your pictures of your grandkids and encounter a bunch of, you know, extremist political content about, um, you know, uh, about racial minorities in the, in the U.S.? No one wants to see that. Um, and I think that's the, that's the fundamental tension for these platforms is that they know the vast majority of their users, you know, want to use their services in, in, um, you know, in ways that are pro-family and pro-sports and pro-comedy and humor. Um, they don't have any larger political agendas. Um, and, and that's the fundamental tension for platforms that, you know, a very small minority of their users use it for political reasons. And, and some folks, you know, very ex- in, in extreme ways. Um, but you know, the, the reality is they're not good for business. Um, and you know, platforms are designing for their long-term growth, their long-term revenue, um, and keeping their, their user base engaged and spending more time so they can deliver more ads to these, these people. Um, and I think that's the, that's the only agenda they truly have. And that's why you see very, you see consistent policies in place. Um, all these platforms ban things like hate speech ban things like incitement, um, have various rules around things like disinformation. Um, and all of this reflects, I think, a very sensible um, middle ground um, that accords with what the vast majority of their users want when they go to spaces online. Look, I have a 10-year-old daughter. You know, Do I want my 10-year-old daughter using any social media platform that's going to be rife with, with horrific information? Um, or pornography. I mean, you know, this is exactly why these platforms all have policies against this, uh, against these sorts of things. And if they didn't, you know, it would be just, a, you know, I don't want my daughter to be exposed to curse words and pornography and hate speech. Like nobody does. Um, and that's why they, you know, that's why they set these boundaries. And that's why content moderation is necessary. Sure. So talking about, you know, platforms like Twitter, you know, when I think of Twitter and the way that it's been engaging in, you know, in the past, let's say like since 2012, since the 2012 election, the way that that has, that Twitter has been so influential in the elections, just by the pure fact of, you know, it kind of opened that door for the younger generations to really engage with political figures. You know, we were able to follow and see the faces and, you know, hear the things that political figures had to say that we might not have otherwise if we didn't have a platform like Twitter. You know, people wouldn't have gone out and searched for that information on their own. So when I look at that, I think of that as, you know, an amazing thing that we're, you know, social media was able to bring you know, politics and, and this whole other world to a whole other generation. Um, you know, do you have that same sort of idea with that? Do you think that's, you know, as much of a good thing as I do? Or do you think, you know, there's some part aspects of that that maybe aren't as, as good to the political scene? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think every generation finds new ways to connect with political leaders. And to the extent that we strengthen bonds between representatives and the citizens that they represent and create opportunities for two-way communication, 
so that people who are in office are hearing from their constituents and hearing from their members about their concerns uh, at the same time as those constituents are hearing from their elected representatives about you know the the various trade-offs that are involved in government and and you know the complicated priorities that that have to be uh, that have to be shaped and reshaped in in democracy. Um, I think that's an unmitigated good thing. Um, so yeah, I mean I'm not. I think with social media you've seen a few things. First of all, people have more access to political information and political communication than at any time in history. Um, I think the second piece of that is that, um, you know, politics is often much more accessible um, than it used to be. It's often done in, in genres that are more easy to connect, as you put it, with like, you know, new generations of folks who, um, you know, grew up on TikTok and, and Snapchat and, and Instagram. Um, politics is made much more immediate. It, it fits much more with, I think, you know, the shifting ways that that cultures um, in the U.S., and, and this is largely generational, you know, want to see political content. They don't want to tune into a local news broadcast, right, at a set time every night at 11 p.m. Like they they want to see the, the, the party members that they're following, you know, on their Instagram feeds. They want those glimpses into their everyday lives, their authentic lives. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're you're 100 percent right. I, I think the challenge with that, though, is that there are also downsides, right? Um, the prospects of, of spreading misinformation um, become, uh, become heightened. Um, the ability of bad actors in bad faith um, looking to, you know, to manipulate the public or undermine, um, you know, scientific institutions or other institutions, they now have a new platform to do so. Um, oftentimes, platforms reward the most emotional and engaging content, um, content that might be debilitating to democratic debate, um, in part because, right, those same commercial systems that I mentioned before, you know, Facebook knows that the most emotionally engaging content is going to get the, is going to keep people on the platform longer. Um, but what might be really good for sports might not always work for democracy, right? Um, that might heighten emotions and, and take away our, our ability to reason about, you know, public policy. So there are always trade-offs. Um, and as with everything, you know, it's, it's complicated. But, but I agree with you. I mean, I think social media has made, it's definitely increased political information and political communication. It's heightened participation and mobilization. Um, and it gives people a much more direct window onto their representatives. On the flip side, it's also lowered the cost of producing and circulating disinformation. It's opened new avenues to, to manipulate or mislead um, the public. And some of the incentive structures have undermined democratic deliberation and, and serious political talk. Sure. So, you know, I think you already said it, um, but would it be fair to say that, you know, social media is responsible for, you know, the recent larger turnouts that we've had in the past two presidential elections? I think social media has played a part. Okay. Um, I wouldn't look entirely at social media. I think the larger trends that you see um, around participation are also heightened by polarization sure. and increased and increased partisanship. Um, the reality is those things are complicated, too, um, is that as people see the world in much more partisan terms mm -hmm. and they see parties as representing their, 
their social and other identities, that also causes them to participate and mobilize more. Um, so that is happening simultaneously as media changes are also enabling political elites to capitalize on that in new ways. So, you know, Democrats and Republicans, for instance, they understand this larger trend and they understand this larger identity basis of politics, but it's also easy for them to do things like run political advertising, um, you know, that, that fires up their base of supporters um, and then mobilizes them to go to the polls. So all these things are sort of working in tandem. Social media plays a role in that. Um, but there's much larger and deeper political shifts that have been going on in the U.S. since the 1960s, 70s, and, and 80s that are also moving the public in a much more partisan and a much more polarized direction, which is also feeding uh, political participation. Mm -hmm. And so th this will be our last question, but we always try to end our podcast with a, with a way to move forward for, for solutions to some of the issues that we've been experiencing and seeing. So we've seen... This recent election has shown us how partisan our country is at the moment. Do you see a way social media can play a role in bringing the country together? Or do you think it's going to kind of continue to create these echo chambers that people choose to stay in? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think this is a really, it, where do we go from here? I think is a really tough, uh, a tough question. Right. Loaded question. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I would say a few things. I, I think the there's a very there's a limited sphere of things that that political that platforms can do, um, given the constraints that they operate under. Um, but I think they can do a few things. The first is is to not always optimize for engagement, um, and this cuts the core of their business model in some ways. But this is a, the phenomenon that I mentioned before. The most emotional content, the most extreme content tends to get the most engagement on platforms. Yeah. Platforms incentivize this because they can make money on it, right? They want more engagement. They want people spending more time. They want their feelings to be amped up. Um, I think platforms need to think long and hard about whether that business model, um, even though it's been spectacularly successful from a revenue perspective, uh, always serves the interests of society well. Um, and they need to, I think, really seriously think about that um, and maybe trying to dial down the temperature, at least on political content, um, where they, you know, think through and, and say that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be optimizing for um, the most emotional, the most extremist content, and we need to put some brakes uh, on things. The second thing is, is something that I think we saw, actually, that's been really positive this election, um, but I think platforms can all do a lot more around is to, to protect institutional politics, which is to say, um, make sure that citizens have access to good information alongside the disinformation. Mm -hmm. Make sure that people know about the integrity of the vote. Make sure that people know about the, the vast numbers of people who are nonpartisan, who are tasked with doing things like ensuring that our, our governmental agencies run well whether that's the Centers for Disease Control to our you know, secretaries of state and our boards of election. All those people who are nonpartisan, who are part of you know, the fabric of the country in terms of producing reliable scientific knowledge, I think platforms can be much more proactive about helping them get their messages out um, to a wider array of, of voters so that Americans know that they can trust their institutions, their scientific institutions, their journalistic institutions, um, their electoral institutions, because they function well. 
Um, and I think that, you know, oftentimes that, it, that looks very different than what people see on a routine basis uh, on social media. I think another piece of it, too, would be something that I mentioned earlier, which is um, that they really need to enforce their own policies in a very, in a much more even way and justify those policies and justify the actions that they take. Um, and this goes back to something that I sort of said before, which is, um, you know, all of us are deeply invested in a democracy to continuing to play the electoral politics game in the future. Democracy is premised on the idea that we need to have peaceful transfer of power, that we need to have competitive elections, that the losing party today might be the winning party two years from now. Mm -hmm. um, in any ways that campaigns, that platforms can look to protect the sanctity of the vote and, and work to check our deepest impulses to demonize the other side, um, I think they should. So part of this comes back to something that we talked about before, right? They should really robustly enforce their policies against things like hate speech. Um, they should look to ensure that that speech that looks to incite partisans to violence or to take anti-democratic action against the other side gets taken down. Um, these are the like these are the very I think the pillars of a democratic society is that we don't demonize one another. That you know we might work against one another and try to defeat the other party at the ballot box, but at the end of the day. They're a legitimate opposition, and we need to see them as such. Um, and I think there's a lot that go into to the content moderation policies of platforms that they can check the worst impulses of partisans, um, like threats of violence, um, like hate speech, um, in order to help sort of elevate the, the discourse that partisans have and maybe mitigate some of the disdain that they have for one another. For sure. Well, I think you've given us some great information to, to really think about, some food for thought for sure. So we really, really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Um, I think especially right after the election, you know, with, again, all the controversy that's been going on, this is a great topic to kind of um, kick it off with. So we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. And we are going to go ahead and wrap up this segment of What the Politics. Great. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. And of, of course, without people like you willing to take the time to talk to us, this podcast wouldn't be available. So again, we really, really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up this segment of What the Politics. We have a new episode released every Tuesday of the week. So stay tuned for our next episode next Tuesday. And thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>